When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. In this episode, Joe Nick tells us about the years when Willie, Waylon, and the boys became the biggest stars in American pop music, Willie's triumphant 80s doing duets with everyone from Merle Haggard and Ray Price to Julio Iglesias, his battles with the IRS, touring with the Highwaymen, and playing at the wedding of Bill and Melinda Gates, as well as Ray Charles's funeral. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined for a third time by Joe Nick Potosky, author of Willie Nelson and Epic Life. Welcome back. Uh, thanks, Nate. Glad to be back again, man. Yeah, this has been so fun, and, and Epic Life is right. So far, we've told the story of... of Willie Nelson from Abbott, Texas, how he traveled the world or traveled the nation to become a musician, succeeded as a songwriter in Nashville, never quite succeeded as a star performer in Nashville, moves to Austin, starts putting the moves in place, makes a couple of great records at Atlantic Records, starts the 4th of July picnic, starts the Austin City Limits, but things are only going to get bigger and better for young Willie. He records an album for Columbia Records, his first album for Columbia. Tell us a little bit about the story of Redheaded Stranger and, and why nobody thought this was going to be the hit that made Willie a superstar. Well, in early 1975, Willie Nelson was at a really interesting juncture. Because if you were in Texas, especially in Austin, here was this guy that was leading this this juggernaut of a band. I mean, a monster band doing playing rock and roll, rocked up country, and doing extended jams, and, you know, playing three-hour-plus shows. That was the Willie Nelson that people knew in Texas. Not many people knew about Willie Nelson over the state line. I mean, he was still fairly an obscure figure. People were hearing something's going on down in Austin. And after his second album, Faces and Stages for Atlantic, uh, Atlantic Nashville shut its doors, and Willie was labelless. His manager, Neil Reshin, uh, went to New York. He was in New York anyhow. He wasn't from Nashville. Uh, and Neil Reshin, Reshin struck a deal with Columbia Records. And it was a pretty standard contract. But as Neil had done with Waylon Jennings representing him and his dealings with RCA, Reshin made sure the artist had complete artistic control. In other words, whatever they recorded, they had the last word on it. And so when it came time to deliver a record, uh, this was in the winter, uh, early 1975, Willie Nelson is telling his wife, Connie, on their way back from a, a ski trip in Colorado, hey, I've got another album that I need to deliver. And as they're driving back, Willie kind of talks through an idea of a concept album, another concept album like Phases and Stages and like Yesterday's Wine Only, this was even more ambitious. It was about a, a preacher man that uh, that shoots his his loved one and goes on the run, goes on the land. And it was all conjured up going back to a song that Willie used to perform when he was a radio disc jockey in Fort Worth in 1954 and 55, a song called Redheaded Stranger, which is popularized 
by a guy from over there in Carolina, Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith. He had a TV show. And Willie loved that song. And he used to sing it on the radio to his kids and then sing it to them at home, a uh, uh, song that they could go to sleep with. And then Willie kept coming up with these different ideas. So by the time, after driving from Colorado back to outside of Austin, he had sketched out the idea of this album. And then he sat at home for a couple weeks and, and with a cassette recorder, played through what he'd built up this album. So when it came time to record, uh, you know, needed to make another album. And Columbia wanted an album. He didn't have an album out. And so he gathered his band together and talked to them and proceeded to take advantage of a really good offer, a heavily discounted offer to come up and test out a new studio in Dallas uh, that was uh, being engineered by an audio engineer up in Dallas named Phil York. And Phil York uh, was contacted Willie, hey, I can give you a great deal if you want to come up here and and do some uh, demoing or, or whatever. Brand new studio, state of the art. You're going to love it. It's called Autumn Sound. It's in Garland, which is right outside of Dallas. Kind of a uh, uh, a, a small scale industrial town, uh, uh, suburb of Dallas. So the band all went up to Dallas, and went up to Garland, and gathered at Autumn Sound. And that's the first time they heard what Willie had sketched out uh, with cassette in his head and uh, uh, in his mind. And he presented this album to them and, and they would learn the songs, play it through and then try to learn another song. And the interesting thing about this album was it was the polar opposite of seeing Willie Nelson live. I mean, the Willie Nelson and the family band that played the, uh, the 4th of July picnics in Dripping Springs and at uh, Bryan College Station was not the Willie Nelson and family band that was there at Autumn Sound. It was such a stripped down sound. Willie basically, just like he was doing his demo, was playing his acoustic Martin guitar trigger. And then there were little embellishments added to it but Willie did not want to electrify this album, despite the fact that his band live was nothing but electric. And he's very cautious about even adding, you know, other pieces, other signatures. What's really clear on this album is uh, it's so spare that it's really the first time that Mickey Raphael's harmonica becomes part of Willie's signature sound in my mind. And he puts together these songs He's got this concept album, and he calls the the album "Redheaded Stranger." That's that's the working title. And taking advantage of Phil York's buddy discount, they basically make an album for ten thousand dollars. And what Willie delivers? Actually, you say in the book that it was under four thousand dollars. Okay, let's. Well, then then I correct myself, and I'm 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 fudging. But yeah, if 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 that's what I wrote in the book, that's what it was because I was very particular in getting the numbers right. But it was made for so cheap that, and it was so spare that what Willie delivered to uh, Columbia Records, the Columbia Brass thought, this is a, a nice demo. Boy, I can't wait till these songs go in the studio and get really polished up. Maybe he's got something there. To which Willie responded, no, 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 you don't understand. This is my record. And it got very contentious. It got to the point where Neil Reshin, accompanied by Waylon Jennings, goes to the office of Bruce Lundvall, president of Columbia Records in New York. And they walk in basically to say, no, 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 this is not a demo. And in fact, Bruce had been talking to Columbia staff in Nashville and uh, the head producer there, Billy Sherrill, who'd been producing George Jones and Tammy Wynette and all these other actions was really kind of polishing this slicked up Nashville sound was chomping at the bit. Bruce, let me produce him. I can, you know, I'll add some sweeteners on there. I'll put some nice courses on there. We'll bring in the A team and, and slick it up and 
man, it'll be a hit. All these people at Columbia were all, they all had their ideas. But when Neil Reshin and Waylon Jennings walked into Bruce Lindball's office, and then when a very head up Waylon Jennings gets physical and basically flails his body across Bruce's desk and gets in his face and says, you don't know what you've got. You don't know what you're doing. You're going to put this out. Bruce Lindball started thinking, well, you know, given the fact that this may be physical violence, maybe we can put this out the first time. We'll get, we'll get it right the second album with Willie. We've got him tied up for a few albums. So reluctantly, Columbia released the album in the summer of 1975. And almost immediately, the single that was pulled off the album, which again was a very unwilly-like single, a spare, stark rendition of a song popularized in the 1940s of country hit called Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. It's released as a single. But that wasn't even again, what Columbia it, released. They, they wanted to go with Remember Me, and it was the DJs, according to your book, that, that well, pulled Well, it out. was Houston DJs had heard the album and were giving the feedback back to Nashville the Columbia Nashville folks, Remember, Remember Me is not a single. And it was released as a single. But the single is Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. And Columbia listened. The radio promo people listened. Because, you know, these guys were pretty adamant in Houston. And Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth are the number one and number two country music consumption markets as far as buyers out there. There are more people buying country music records in Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth than anywhere in the United States. So the promo men paid attention and they couldn't figure out this Willie Nelson thing to begin with. They thought, you know, this guy's crazy. It's going to be a, a flop. Nothing's going to happen. And when Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain takes off and charts and, and, and rockets to the top of the country charts, everybody's scratching their head except Willie and the radio disc jockeys. Because what people forgot was that Willie Nelson was a radio disc jockey at one time back in the 1950s. And one thing he always did throughout the 1960s while he's trying to make it as a performer, not as a songwriter, but as a performer, is he always visits the radio stations. He always thanks the disc jockeys. He seeks them out. He was one, one, he was one of them once, and he appreciated the attention when he got it like he did with May Axton. So Willie was basically getting repaid a, de a decade's worth of favors that he had been giving to disc jockeys. The disc jockeys were so glad that finally they had something that they could pay back Willie Nelson. All the other efforts that he had done in singles, they, maybe they tried to play it or push it, but nothing worked. This had traction. And not only did it have traction, I mean, this was like Willie Nelson started blowing up. He became a national uh, act. He wasn't he wasn't regional or or local anymore. The Fourth of July picnic in Liberty Hill, Texas, outside of Austin in 1975, drew over 75,000 people. A huge success, and it included just a variety of acts, but including the Pointer Sisters. You know, three black sisters that harmonized and sang kind of soul and old fashioned big band music. That's, that's part of Willie Nelson's family. Now the tent expanded and became very wide and Willie was embracing everything and everybody. And it was just, everybody wanted to get on the Willie bandwagon and the album redheaded stranger took off. Uh, the singles kept coming. The crowds blew up. So by the end of 1975, with Redheaded Stranger, Willie Nelson Live becomes an arena act. He's not playing the honky-tonks anymore, the bars, or even the small venues. He's playing arenas. Yeah, Often you talk about tandem. a multi-million dollar, multi-year contract with Caesars Palace. And he's also on the cover of Newsweek, back when that was a really big deal, as the king of country music. Yeah, this is where... Willie's influence 
outpaces country music. And he, he becomes something bigger than country. And even though that album is considered very country, despite its its starkness and its fairness, uh, it, strangely enough, crossed over more so than the rock and roll, rocked-up record-like Faces and Stages and, uh, and Shotgun Willie did not do. So everything's contrarian here, which is right in line with the way Willie operates. But it just... That's the record that really changed everything. And he was this, you could call him the king of country music. He was attracting a crowd that was far beyond country music. He was hip. And he was, you know, the hippies dug him. And Nashville is all of a sudden swallowing hard, wondering what the hell is happening. And we have no control over it. And it's not on our turf. And to me, that's the beauty of Willie. And not that he was shooting the finger at Nashville, but he didn't need Nashville anymore. And he made, made that very clear. And I think it, it's very telling. I mean, that album was so big that it triggered the response from Nashville, and particularly Jerry Kennedy, producer at uh, RCA Records, to exploit Willie's catalog with RCA, which was extensive, but nothing had sold. So in order to sleaze off of Willie's success, Jerry took some new tracks from Waylon Jennings and took a bunch of old Willie tracks and added Tom Paul Glazier and Waylon Jennings' wife, Jessie Coulter, in a complete, it was nothing but, this was hype. This was a promotional deal. Uh, they sold a kind of duct tape uh, collection of tracks as wanted the outlaws and the outlaws, this whole idea of outlaw music, that's a Nashville invention. No one was calling this outlaw music back in, in Austin. Maybe they were calling it progressive country or they were just calling it outside the box, but outlaws, it's like, come on, man. So one of the outlaws was perfect timing and Jerry Kennedy must've gotten a bonus because it became the first platinum country music album ever selling more than a million units even though it had so little to do with what was going on in austin and what willie nelson was doing and to me in this moment of perfection and willie being a proud texas contrarian here's the nashville response which is like oh you know country music outlaws what does willie do the next album is nothing but songs from the great American songbook from the 30s and 40s as produced by Booker T. Jones of Booker T. and the MGs. And I want to get there, out, but I, you got to talk about one other song they did that Waylon and Willie did together around the same time that also blew the, the lid off, Lukenbach, Texas. Okay, yeah. One, one of the outlaws was, was, it was a big deal. And it blew up so well that Willie did at least acknowledge and accommodate what was going on in Nashville by going into the studio with Waylon Jennings and recording a song that was a Nashville confection, but it was trying to play off of what was going on in Texas. Let's go to Luke and Bach, Texas. Let's go back to the base of Kablite. Never mind the fact that Waylon Jennings had never been to Luke and Bach, the Hill Country ghost town, which had been reinvented uh, by and rediscovered by everybody through Jerry Jeff Walker's album, Viva Terralingua, which was recorded at the Lukenbach Dance Hall. It was just, this was kind of like a charming little ghost town that people visited and they'd take their guitars and play music, drink beer, maybe play horseshoes. Well, Nashville songwriters exploited that and made Lukenbach, Texas into this number one record that crossed over into pop music. It wasn't just a country music number one. It was a pop music number one. Never mind that one of the two singers had never been there and didn't know what the hell he was singing about. And it was a bunch of Nashville knuckleheads that wrote the song. To me, this was like perfect, you know, Nashville exploitation, trying to figure out what's going on in Texas. How do we make a buck off of it? That's the epitome of that. And it was, right. you know, a colossal hit and, and continues to please crowds today. And I got two questions before I want to let you get to Stardust. First off, Willie 
continued to do business with people that you call scalawags and thieves. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> despite the objections of his management team, Billboard magazine, everybody. What's the story with that? Yeah, Willie and his thieves is nothing but a story of loyalty. And when we call them thieves, it's always as a, it's not in a pejorative. We're, this, this is actually a badge of courage. These are the promoters that worked with Willie in Texas back in the 1960s when he was struggling. And, you know, they were territorial promoters. There was, you know, the infamous Gino McCausland in Dallas and uh, uh, Tom Gresham in Waco and uh, Larry Trader in, in San Antonio. And these guys were, they, they played both sides of the fence. And being promoters, and especially in country music in the 1960s, you had to take liberties. And you had to kind of sometimes ignore what the rules are. You had to sometimes short an artist, or you'd have to screw someone over uh, to get what you needed. And out of loyalty, Willie kept them around. And part of it was pretty good reasoning. You know, at least they were the devil that he knew, not someone new that shows up and 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 thinks that, uh, uh, you know, a new pr- uh, promotion firm Willie doesn't know him and doesn't care if it's Pace Concerts or Concerts West or, or, or whomever, but he doesn't know them. So they may be slicker and they may be more legitimate and they may have lawyers, but that doesn't mean they're not going to screw him around or try to skim off of them. So he would rather deal with his thieves. And he knew going in, they're going to skim a little off, but that's the price of doing business. But I know them and they know me and we trust each other. So loyalty is a very important quality defining life inside the, Willie, the world of Willie Nelson. And I think the first time outsiders or non-country music people really honed in on that was in the 70s when they had to deal with his thieves, his promoters. And, you know, the Armadillo World Headquarters broke up with Willie over his thieves because they carried guns backstage. And the hippies didn't like seeing these these kind of grizzled old characters flashing heat. And I understand that completely. But what the hippies didn't understand was in country music in the sixties in particular, you didn't have lawyers. You didn't have business managers. You had a gun to get paid with, or you sometimes weren't going to get paid. Now, and bringing these people another, in. Uh, I was uh, going to say that. Go ahead. There was the, the the epitome of this was when Gino McCausland booked Willie at some gigs at the Sportatorium in Dallas, which he had been booking Willie there in the '60s. And when Willie blows up and he's huge, not only does he pack out the Sportatorium, he oversells it to the point that where there are exit signs, this is a wrestling arena on Industrial Boulevard in downtown Dallas, the bad part of downtown, it's where they used to have the big D Jamboree in the 1950s and 60s, where Elvis Presley first played in Dallas. And uh, the big D was as big as the Grand Old Opry at one time. By the 1970s, it had seen better days and was kind of ramshackle. So when Gino McCausland is booking his buddy Willie there, he, he takes these signs over these two doors that say exit, and he replaces those signs and puts men and women. So people that don't know what's going on, they're in the sportatorium and they go through this door saying men or women thinking they're going to the restroom and find themselves outside and they're not going to get back in because the place has been oversold. That's creative promotion. And I actually had a gun pulled on me uh, by Gino when he was promoting the 1976 uh, a picnic in in uh, Gonzales, which was kind of a disaster, and it stopped the first run of uh, picnics. But uh, a friend of mine, Nelson Allen, and I were, went to Gonzales a couple weeks before the event because there had been a lot of pushback from the community. So we went to go interview Gino for a, a paper, picking up the tempo, and it was a friendly conversation. Gino had been up for many days, was obviously on um, um, the kind of uh, anxiety, teeth grinding end of too much cocaine. And just in the middle of it, pulled out his gun and put it on the desk and said, hey, we're not even doing any negotiations, man. You don't have to do this with us. But 
that was the world of Willie's own world. And it didn't always mesh with Willie's new world that he was inventing as we were going along. So, but those were the thieves. And that's what anybody that was dealing with Willie would have to deal with people like that. Larry Trader, the thief from San Antonio, he used to be Ray Price's bag man. He was the guy with the, the briefcase that had the money in it. And he had guns too. Larry was made president of Lone Star Records, which was Willie's reward for Redheaded Stranger was, oh, we're giving you your own custom record label. We'll call it Lone Star Records. And it allowed Willie to sign up three or four of his, his recording artist friends. It was a complete disaster as a label. Willie was back on Columbia before you knew it. But Larry Trader was the president of the record company for a while because, you know, Willie wanted to give all his friends, uh, uh, reward them for their loyalty. And and I think you, you tell a story that kind of explains some of Willie's incredible high level of tolerance because around this time he switched from a three-pack-a-day cigarette habit to a uh, three-packs-of-joints-a-day habit instead. Austin saved Willie's life because it was swimming in weed. And not that there wasn't weed anywhere else on the road or in Nashville or wherever he was hanging around. Weed's always around musicians. But uh, in the 70s, early 70s, marijuana was was, was abundant in Austin. I mean, you could buy an ounce of, of pretty good Mexican commercial weed for $10. Uh, you could buy a six pack of beer for 99 cents as well. I mean, if you're that desperate to really get loaded, uh, but it was, it, weed was cheap. It was plentiful and it was tol- tolerated in Austin. The County Sheriff, uh, Raymond Frank did not prosecute people that were possessing weed. I got caught. I remember once and I had like a, well, maybe a half an ounce in my glove box and I was drunk as all get out. And an Austin policeman pulled me over cause I was weaving and did I have anything on me? And I showed him the weed. Well, he poured it out onto the street and told me to go home. That was Austin in the 70s. So perfect place to be casual about smoking marijuana. And fortunately for Willie, uh, Doug Somm had arrived in Austin about the same time. They were label mates on Atlantic Nashville. And Doug brought a refined uh, appreciation for weed with him from not only San Antonio, but from San Francisco, uh, where he had been a weed head and into varieties and different strains when, you know, everybody else is just calling it pot. So when he landed in Austin, he kind of elevated the weed game. So when Willie started smoking, uh, he had access to really high quality marijuana and it just saved his life. He was, as all the people around him say, a shitty drinker. Paul English says, you know, back in the day, Willie would get drunk. He'd want to go drive the vehicle, whatever vehicle they were in. And Paul would have to always take the keys away. He was a bad drunk. Connie, his wife at the time, said he was terrible drunk. Lana, his daughter, said that weed saved his life because it got him off of not just smoking cigarettes, which it did, but it really tamped down his drinking. So he very rarely got drunk. He was getting high all the time. And, you know, by 1980, uh, Willie is kind of the poster boy for marijuana. He's embraced it. Uh, he, he likes it. He doesn't feel hesitant about talking about it. And the other thing is, no matter where you see him play or no matter where you are seeing him, you're likely going to be smelling some high-quality dope. And that was, uh, you know, Willie was the one who, you know, Doug Som uh, kind of faded away and started hanging around in Europe. Willie was here, and Willie was weed. And Willie was cool. And like I said, if you're, if you're going to smoke weed with someone, and I can, I can say this firsthand, it's not just uh, anecdotal, but uh, uh, from my experiences, if you're going to smoke marijuana with anyone, whether you smoked it before or not, uh, Smoking with Willie Nelson is is being at the mountaintop. There is no one higher. There's no better quality of weed. Uh, you know, Snoop Dogg looks up to Willie. It's not the other way around, folks. So <laughs> that started in the 1970s, and it not it first started out as basically getting Willie to quit cigarettes, but it really wound up saving his life, tamped down the anger, and 
uh, made him a happier person. And now you can tell us about the Stardust album and his collaboration with Booker T. Jones, famous Stax record yeah. recording artist. Yeah, it, this was it, the brilliance was the contrarian once again. Here's one of the outlaws. So you think that, oh, well, we should go back and record some more country songs and play to that stereotype. And maybe his next album can go platinum too instead of just gold. And Willie was, was not even thinking about that. He was busy. He was spending a lot of time in, uh, he bought a place in the, uh, on the beach in Malibu, in California, Los Angeles. And was hanging out there a lot because he was doing a lot of work in, in Vegas. He was signing huge contracts in Vegas and working with Steve Wynn. I mean, things were going his way left and right. And, you know, it was now five and, and five-figure gigs were becoming the norm and even the occasional six-figure gig. So he's having a good time hanging out in Malibu and just chilling. He was getting away from his his ranch in Austin and all the craziness in Austin. Malibu, he could be himself. And he met this guy one day who was jogging on the beach, a black guy in Malibu, which is weird enough. Well, he struck up a conversation, discovered pretty soon that uh, he and Booker T. Jones had more in common than anyone realized in Booker T and Booker T and the MGs and a, a producer in his own right. Uh, he was hanging out in Malibu too, living the good life. Both these guys were making money and living kind of high on the hog so they could be there even. And, you know, they, they became friends. They talked and hung out on the beach and discovered this common bond of, they both grew up on kind of the same kind of music. Booker T may be black and grew up in Memphis and Willie a white boy who grew up in Abbott, but they heard the same songs on the radio. And these are the songs of what we know now as the great American song, but the great standards of our time. And discovered this, you know, hey, we both dig it. Willie had another album to deliver. In fact, you know, Columbia's not stopped bothering him. When's the next out? When's the next out? I mean, come on, man. We need another, we need another redheaded stranger. You know, we need, we need another one of the outlaws. RCA is making all the money. We're not making the money. So he really collaborates with Booker T. They run through some ideas and they come up with this concept. Let's do songs for the great American songbook that we grew up with that we like. You like this one? Oh man, I love this one. And you know, it starts with a song like Stardust. And these are not country music songs, ladies and gentlemen. They're not rock and roll songs. They're mellow pop ballads, kind of, you could call them, or, you know, standards. And they yeah, take these advantage. are the songs jazz was built on. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, these songs are more of a building block of jazz than they were of any other kind of, of American music. But even that, I mean, you'd consider for jazz, these were not, this wasn't something necessarily that Miles Davis would play, although maybe he would. Oh, Miles so, has, has chewed through a few of these. But yeah, I mean, this was, they were also Broadway pop songs. It's the Frank Sinatra song. Pop songs. What, what was unique about this, and you're right, jazz artists did cover standards, and they would improvise on them and make them more their own songs. But country artists weren't doing this. Country artists were, you know, if you went back in time, you were doing old Hank Snow songs or, 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 you know, something from a Hank Williams song. That was, that's what roots was in country to go outside of the country realm and to do pop music, and especially do it with Booker T uh, was again, completely contrarian. And yet, you know, they're recording the record. They do it at Brian Ahern's place. He's got the, he's got his mobile trailer. Uh, he's, uh, he's married to Emmy Lou Harris the country singer, that they live in L.A., and uh, they end up using his house as much as they use the trailer. The trailer becomes the recording studio as well as rooms in the house. And this is all, the house is not a recording studio. This is all going against type. And again, with so much money on the line, with his name value just astronomical, he is resisting every opportunity to do what you're supposed to do to cash in on that and do it his own way. And what happens? What's the result? An album called Stardust. And the very simple 
you know, landscape atmospheric cover is drawn by Susanna Clark, the wife of the songwriter and singer from Texas, Guy Clark. Very simple, very stark cover, no trace of the band on there. His name's on there, Willie Nelson, but that's it. And it comes out, and this should be another case of Jerry Wexler putting out these albums that no one wanted to listen to. But instead, the world is ready for this album. They're ready for Willie Nelson to take this leap. And what you have is an album that not only crosses over into pop, we're talking about an album that stays on the country music album charts longer than any single record before or since. Off the charts. Unprecedented. It's just amazing. I love the quote from Booker T. Jones. Describe him, uh, what he said when he... I didn't know what they'd think when I turned in the record, but I know they didn't print many of them. (laughs) And then a a few paragraphs later, he's like, then it blows up, and I didn't know how much they sold until I got a platinum record in the mail. (laughs) But that's... You know, that's just it. And, and the brass, the record label always wants to be smart. They want to certainly help the artist. But usually the thinking is the label, having been through all this, knows better than the artist. And the, the label there is to guide the artist. And again, this was the second time. Columbia's hedging their bets because they don't know what to think. And to me, that right there is artistic brilliance that no one knows what to think except the artist. The artist thinks this is pretty damn good and then goes out to proceed, proceeds to prove his point. Um, so it's just, it's a beautiful thing that that record is the one that uh, it's the epitome. It, it's, it's the peak. It's peak Willie Nelson. And from and, there, you know, he moves on into multimedia and stars in a movie or co-stars in a movie called electric horseman with Robert Redford and Jane Fonda, which at the time were absolutely A-list Hollywood celebrities. Yep, and, and Willie established himself immediately as a character actor in Electric Horseman. Such a good character actor that Slim Pickens, who performs with him in the film Honeysuckle Rose, says that Willie Nelson plays the best Willie Nelson you've ever seen on screen. And that's true. He He's not a great actor. Frankly, I don't think as far as a film actor, but his presence, he's Willie Nelson. And that led to uh, Redford loved it so much that he optioned uh, the album of Redheaded Stranger and wants to make a movie out of it. In the meantime, uh, uh, Sidney Pollack swoops into Austin and uh, makes this film Honeysuckle Rose, which is basically Willie Nelson as a made up character who's a whole lot like Willie Nelson. Uh, that film goes great, gangbusters. It's followed by another film, uh, The Songwriter. And Willie Nelson is finally realizing what he wanted to, to be as a kid, which was not so much wanting to be a musician performing, but he could finally be one of those cowboy movie stars. He was that. And he really loves movies to this day. I think he'll drop something performing music if he's got a chance to be in front of a camera and perform and act. He loves that. But, you know, those those films, Honeysuckle Rose, Songwriter, uh, did well enough that, you know, Willie was pretty high profile as a movie actor. And meanwhile, but, he's continuing to stay on the charts with this seemingly endless series of duets that kind of culminated in the most improbable duet of all, a huge hit he recorded with Julio Iglesias, of all people. By, by Stardust, uh, Willie's pretty much moved most of his operations from uh, the Austin Opry House in South Austin on Academy Drive, where he owns all these apartments that rents out to all, all these never-do-wells. And uh, he has a recording studio, and he has this performance venue. And he gradually is moving his operations uh, through serendipity 25 miles west of downtown Austin to a bankrupt country club, the Pernalis Country Club, which had a a country club headquarters and a nine-hole golf course. And 
one of the first things he does, I mean, he buys it on the cheap. It's got all these condos, so all the band members, all the people that hang around with him that want to have their own place, including his sister, they all have their own condos. And he brings in Chips Moman, uh, the great producer from Memphis and from Nashville, to come in and build a state-of-the-art recording studio. And as soon as it's built out, Willie goes on a tear. There is not a day goes by that he's not playing golf, and recording and doing whatever he damn well pleases. If he's not on the road, that's what he's doing there. That's when Daryl Royal, uh, the retired coach of the UT Texas Longhorns, becomes his sidekick and hangs out. They, they play golf all the time. And if Willie's recording in the studio, Daryl is in the captain's chair right next to him. If you don't know who he is, you think, you know, who's this guy shadowing Willie Nelson? Well, it's probably the one person that's better known in Texas up till recently, then Willie Nelson. Yeah, after, Coach Royal. after President LBJ died, Daryl Royal was as close to a king of Texas, and, and with Willie Nelson there, it's like the twin kings of Texas in the 80s, just reigning over it's Austin. A, and it's a power thing. It, the odd thing is, Willie, by now, is very open about his fondness for marijuana, and you know, to go play golf on that nine-hole golf course at Willie World it's like, it, it's, you know, there's no such thing as a foursome. There's twelvesomes. Everybody's getting loaded. I mean, you can just follow a cart and get high with secondhand smoke. Uh, but it's, and, and here's Coach Royal. He's a modicum of straight up Texas, and he's hanging out with him. And I don't, I don't know that Coach Royal's indulging, but he certainly is not disapproving. And he's he certainly getting a secondhand high. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. But he's digging it, and the thing is, Willie goes on a real recording tear and does what a lot of country music acts have always done in doing duets. I mean, the the, the duet tradition in country. You look back at all these, you know, great singers, Ray Price and, and George Jones, people like that from Texas. They always had a duet singer with them. So it wasn't so odd for Willie to go back and do an album of duets with these different people. But it was basically paying back all these people that had helped him along. So Farron Young, you recorded Hello Walls. Thanks, man. So he records with Farron Young. Lefty Frizzell. Man, you know, you were an inspiration to me and, and, and really kind of showed me the way. So uh, uh, he does a whole album with Lefty of nothing but Lefty Frizzell songs. So it's just, you know, this payback is going on. He'll discover people. And, and and the urge to to do duets is like insatiable. And, you know, he's doing a lot of duet album, albums with Leon Russell. Leon's never done a duet album before. But again, this is like two great giants. So it's it's kind of a combination uh, of, of of their their forces. And these are these are great albums, and he's whipping them out left and right and putting them out and just nuts. It's not like wait every six months to do a release. Willie's putting them out as quick as he can. And he's actually developing a backlog of stuff. So there's a point when Connie and Willie are sitting in a hotel room in London while Willie's playing over in, in England. And Connie's bored and, and wanders down to the Virgin Record Store, this new era of mega record stores. And this is kind of the home base in London. Goes into a Virgin store and is hanging out and here's something playing over the sound system and is curious enough to ask about it and basically goes back to the hotel to tell Willie about this guy Julio Iglesias who happens to be the most popular Latin singer in the world they never heard of him but you know she kind of was really taken with his voice and you know kind of mentions man why don't you do a duet with this guy Willie, being a welcome-all-comers kind of guy. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. So in a matter of days, there's some reaching out of management to management. And before you know it, there is an entourage of limousines that arrive at the Pernellis Country Club in front of the Pernellis Recording Studio, and out comes a, a group of well-dressed gentlemen and in the middle of them all is Julio Iglesias, biggest Latin singer in the world. And he's wondering 
about this time, what the hell has my management done? Because here are all these kind of hippie cowboys. He's outside of Austin. He's never been in this area of the United States before. And, you know, and Willie's got Coach Royal behind him. Who is this guy? Is this his security guy or his, his, his bag man or his trusted guy? What What is the deal here? And they proceed to record this song that, as far as the sound, it's pretty indescribable. It's some kind of neo-ballad, and it's very romantic, called To All the Girls I've Loved Before. And it begins with Julio singing it, with, and he has a beautiful voice. And then it comes down to Willie's distinctive, kind of craggy old, battered voice in with him. And number one global hit, pop hit, not country, pop, Latin hit, transcends all formats. And this is just in keeping with what, what would Willie do? He would just go back in the studio and record some more. Never did another recording with Julio other than that album. But, you know, the friendship was formed and, and definitely a mutual Respect and Appreciation Society was established. And that's, you know, Willie continued to record with everybody he could record with. And I think at one point, he told me in the 1990s, the one person he hadn't recorded with that he'd like to record with was Barbara Streisand. And I don't believe he's recorded with her. But just about anyone else that he's had a hankering to record with, he's recorded with. And, you know, going, I mean, some classic duets, the Merle Haggard recordings he did, the Ray Price recordings he did. And again, this is paying back people that he's known for years, but, you know, he was helping them out. Merle Haggard had seen better days. Uh, Ray Price had peaked. Willie Jump started their, both of their careers all over again. And he didn't also think twice the- about it. And the Merle Haggard duet, you know, uh, of Poncho and Lefty, one of Towns Van Zandt's songs, you know, funded Towns Van Zandt and brought him to popular exposure. And that whole scene that's emerged of Towns Van Zandt fans is just sort of a little acorn tossed off the Willie tree. But I want to get to live, to Farm Aid. Uh, yeah. And a, a partnership. He didn't record duets, but he worked with these guys a lot with John Cougar Mellencamp and Neil Young and even Bob Dylan. What's the, what's, tell yeah. us the story of Farm Aid. Quickly. Well, you got to understand where Willie grew up. It's Abbott, Texas. It's a, it's a cotton farming community. And Willie has stayed in touch with the people he grew up with, and they stayed in touch with him. He bought the only grocery store in town and has kept it going. Uh, he, he's bought a lot of property there. He goes back to Abbott. Great respect. And I think somewhere in the 1980s, he was already keying in on this. I remember talking to him one, one time interviewing him for Texas Monthly, driving around the ranch in his pickup, smoking weed, getting high. And at one point, he just started talking about farming and parody. And he said, farmers since World War II have not gotten parody for what they produced. Up to World War II, they, kind of, they, got, they were paid for what they produced, and there was value. But what's happened since is there's so many middlemen involved – the small independent farmers gotten cut out. They've either been forced to join, uh, to sell out or join a larger farming group, a cooperative and become agribusiness. And that just pissed him off. He didn't like seeing his friends hurting or seeing them get less and less of a piece of the pie for doing something that he considered to be very important. And out of that and out of talks with his friends uh, and comparing notes, John Cougar Mellencamp from Indiana, Neil Young's from uh, from Ontario, Canada, but you know he he knows uh, he knows the Western United States pretty well, and they knew the story of the farmers and how farmers were getting squeezed out and marginalized, and how the number of farmers was declining rapidly, and you know we're going to lose this knowledge that we've had uh, of the land, and that prompted Farm Aid, and it was to help out the family farmer, and it's specific, not just the family farmer the small independent family farmer. And Willie always said, I'm paying back my friends. I'm paying back the people I grew up with. And he's paying back all the farmers that grew stuff for him. Uh, they have grown stuff for everybody in the United States. 
And it's been one of the best fundraisers for the farming movement. Uh, and it, it, it persists. It, it, it's bigger than ever. It continues to move around. And it, once a year, it brings back focus on family farmers. Now, I've got to say, there's been a lot of uh, uh, spinoff from that history. I think the most telling thing from the association that Willie's had with these, that core group of players has been the fact that Neil Young has stolen his sons, Micah and Lucas, and, and they backed up Neil Young and his band over the last couple of years. Uh, they do play with Willie occasionally, but when Neil Young's out on the road, they're playing with him. And that's, Neil wouldn't have keyed in on those kids if not for uh, just everybody getting together for all these barmaids. They're family. And they really are. They're, they're kind of, they're almost like reunions as much as they are, you know, a big, big uh, 100,000, multi-thousand uh, uh, people uh, rock concert. And it's speaking of reunions, that. shortly after uh, Farm Aid started in the late 80s, early 90s, he puts together a reunion with uh, three of the his fellow country music superstars, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, and Chris Christopherson, uh, for a project called The Highwaymen. Tell us about that yeah. and how they ended up recording a Jimmy Webb song, of all things. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the collaborations, the duets, kind of just, they kept coming. And it wasn't always necessarily someone big. It, was, it would be Little Joe Hernandez, the, the father of Tejano music. He did a, an album with him. Or Daryl McCall, country singer who moved down to Texas because that's where fiddle and steel guitar were and dance music. He worked with Daryl McCall, but... Probably the the wildest and le- least predicted collaboration was when he joined forces with three of his best friends in country music, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, and Chris Christopherson. Cash owned Nashville in the 60s. He was Nashville. He changed Nashville. And Chris Christopherson was the it guy in 1970 all throughout the 1970s. He was the, the new voice of uh, Nashville singer-songwriters. And, and, and Waylon, you know, Waylon was Waylon. Uh, 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 he had been alongside Willie throughout the 60s and 70s. But all three, by the end of the 1980s, it kind of peaked. And even Willie was kind of seeing a little bit of a, of a plateau. Uh, the crowds had come and they were still pretty wild. It wasn't quite what it was when, you know, Waylon Jennings and he were playing and they, their security was the Hells Angels. Things had settled down a little bit. And so let's do, you know, strength in numbers. Let's do the highwaymen. And as it turned out at the time when this concept was foisted on the public, uh, it was one that all four of them really needed. But to me, it's really telling that Willie was the best known of the four at the time. Willie's star was still shining much brighter than Cash's, than Christopherson's, and yes, even Waylon's. They had hit their peaks, and they were, you know, they, they, they could use a boost. And Willie, through his involvement, gave everybody the boost. But, <laughs> again... You put those four guys together and collaborating, no telling what's going to happen. And where one might think, oh, they're going to redo Hank Williams or they're going to sing the Ray Price songbook or something like that. No, no, no. It was it was as goofy and offbeat and out of uh, off type as any recordings that Willie had been doing. So doing Jimmy Jimmy Webb, sure, that's a good song. And, you know, this will showcase our voices. And it really did. It was, I think, more so than recordings, it was that package show. Uh, it really juiced everything. They played, they, played, they played big halls, and they packed it out. They, this was not a... Uh, the draw live uh, had not diminished for any of them. So it was a real smart consolidation, and it was uh, one of the best package tours of the 80s or 90s, it was out there. And it kept those guys going. That's, to me, the critical thing. It kept them up there and out there. And then around this time, he has 
I guess if there's a downfall in the Willie Nelson story, it's when the IRS comes knocking. You know, starting in the 1970s when, when Willie's business became pretty big and Paul English couldn't just carry all that cash in his briefcase uh, or stuff it in the socks after a show. Uh, you know, they had to enter a, a, the professional world of management. And there was Neil Resch in there. And uh, uh, he was a pretty big deal. But, you know, in, in the, during the 70s, Neil was managing Willie and Waylon and Miles Davis, the jazz trumpeter. Who, he had had Miles before he had Waylon. And he also had signed Chris Christopherson. But in 77, right around there, there's a package of cocaine that's being shipped from the management office in New York to Wayland's recording studio in Nashville, and it's intercepted by authorities. And in the end, Neil Reshen's assistant, a guy named Mark Rothbaum, says it's mine, takes the fall, goes to prison. And here's loyalty at work. It's, uh, within a matter of months, Willie Nelson is the first one to quit Neil Reshen and sign with Mark Rothbaum as manager. Christopherson comes around and does the same. It takes Waylon a while to come around. But once again, even though his manager is in prison doing two years' time for cocaine possession or shipping it through the mail, loyalty trumps every other element. So that really kind of kind of sets the stage there. But as the business is, is growing, and here's Mark Rothbaum, when he gets out of, of prison, he starts upgrading Willie's business. But while Neil Reshen was still managing Willie, he had to take he hired an accounting firm, uh, Price Waterhouse Cooper, to handle his business, and basically handled it all over to, to Price Waterhouse. You know, manages his taxes and his affairs. Before then, Willie never paid taxes. Whenever the tax man showed up with a bill, you owe this much. Yeah, get the money together and pay him. Simple as that. But he didn't pay taxes. Just figured, you know, they're going to know what I owe and they're going to tell me what I owe. Well, now he's gone slick and Pricewaterhouse was, you know, seeking all the tax advantages and all this. By the late 80s, IRS starts showing up and, you know, we've got some problems with the way your, the books are being kept. And Willie keeps, you know, ignoring it. You know, my accounts will take care of this. It's no problem. Until it just keeps getting ignored and ignored and ignored until all of a sudden the IRS presents Willie Nelson with a bill for $36 million in back taxes. This is, gonna, this is, this is intended to be, and that not only could break him, but he, he's going to be made an example of these celebrities that don't pay their taxes. We're going to show them. And Willie, all the way along, had been saying, you know, my accounting firm's taking care of this. And it got to the point where it was very celebrated, Willie Nelson's IRS problems. He put out an album of old tracks, and who will buy my memories? The IRS tapes. And thinking he's going to work out his debt by selling this album. Well, I don't think it even sold 50,000 copies. It's not going to pay off anything of the bills. And that's when Willie says, you know, well, if I'm broke, I can always just go up the street and go go sing for my supper, knock on doors and play music for people. And as it is, and this was never talked about much in the press, but the accounting firm was liable and ultimately settled out of court, paid all of Willie's debt off, and Willie regained a lot of the possessions that were auctioned off uh, when the tax man foreclosed on everything, he got most of his stuff back, got his guitar back, got, got all, everything that was valuable back. Uh, and a lot and of his friends water- chipped in and bought stuff at auction. And, well, they and went to the auction to and they, they bought as much as they could. And not too much got taken away by uh, unsavory folks. I mean, this is all an inside deal. No one was going to let Willie get hurt. But in the end, Pricewaterhouse Cooper copped to what went on, but it was a non-disclosure agreement. So it was never discussed that they were liable, but the debt was paid off and everything went back to normal. So, you know, it was an unfortunate event. People still make fun of 
You know, oh, well, he doesn't pay his taxes. He's a tax dodger. And that's bullshit. Uh, he's always been up front. He's, he has hired another accounting firm to do his taxes for him, though. That's right, called. I want to wrap up with one last question. You, you tell uh, Willie's basically glided into the sunset years with a great deal of luck and charm and elegance that sums up his life. But there's two special performances he played in his later years. I thought the dichotomy was pretty interesting. He played Bill and Melinda Gates' wedding and insisted on a million dollars cash. And yeah. he also played Ray Charles's funeral for nothing. Yep. Yeah. Well, he is a uh, he's a working musician. You know, Bill Bill and Melinda Gates have plenty of money. He knows that, and it, that's not the only million dollar gig he's done. He'll still do. You know, I'll, every once in a while you'll see he's doing a hundred thousand dollar gig at the Broken Spoke, which is a little honky tonk here for a private party. If people can afford him, uh, he'll play for him, and he'll give him a good show. But Loyalty being loyalty and friends being friends, of all those duet partners, one of his tightest friendships was Ray Charles, the blind R&B pianist, singer, musician, arranger, conductor. And you got to understand, that goes back to uh, the Modern Sounds of Country Music, a crossover album that Ray Charles recorded back in the early 60s. And, and it was radical because he was a black man, a blues player singing country music standards and doing it soulfully. And all the players in Nashville just dug the shit out of that album. They couldn't get enough of it, including Willie Nelson and all the players that he worked with. So when he got time to, he's so big he can do duets with anyone, he sought out Ray Charles, and they really did become best friends. And Willie loved telling the story about how they became best, not only best friends, but they loved to play chess with each other. Willie is a chess player. Paul, Paul English taught him. And Ray Charles is a chess player, even though that he's blind. And Willie tells the story about the first time he plays with Ray and Ray just, you know, wipes him off the board. And then he says, and that's when I learned you never play Ray Charles with the lights out. Uh, <laughs> but that really became a great friendship. And I interviewed him for a long piece I did for No Depression magazine uh, right after Ray Charles had died. But it was before the funeral. I was like a day or two after his death. And Willie tends to have a pretty hard exterior. He's lost way too many people. He doesn't dwell on death. He doesn't go to many funerals at all. Because uh, if he did, that's all he'd do. And he's, he's always looking ahead. But when we brought up Ray, his eyes started watering up really quickly. And he just said, I lost a friend. So... What do you do for friends like that? You pay them back the best you can. Uh, there was there was not a moment of hesitation. I don't think money was discussed anywhere or expenses or anything. He was there for his friend Ray, and he was going to sing his ass off for him. And uh, that's what he did. And uh, thanks for telling us these stories, Joe Nick. This has been great. And uh, this is the story, Willie Nelson, an epic life. It's just an incredible biography of an incredible performer. And thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, well, thanks for having me. And uh, if you haven't heard Willie Nelson music before, this is probably a pretty good time to go start looking for it. Here, here. Thanks for listening. Next week, Nate will be back with author Robert Gordon to discuss his new book, Memphis Rent Party. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nelson, An Epic Life, is available from Little Brown and Company and can also be found wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.